it's a lot easier to stand up here for this period of time than it is to sit in those chairs for the same period of time. I've done both. I have to have continuing education credits to keep my licensure. So I have to attend a lot of lectures and it's usually really good stuff. But when you've been there for hours and hours, you know, it's like sometimes it's too much good stuff. And you, um, so I appreciate your, your willingness to stick with it and um, to be here today for these sessions. And um, many of you, in fact, most of you have been here for, uh, for every session. Um, I'm pleased, not because I'm the speaker, but I'm truly pleased that you have a willingness to learn and to utilize opportunities to take what we have learned and for us to use it um, to help and assist each other. We never know what assistance we might need and when we might need it. But um, our last session is going to deal with a treatment of anxiety and depression. We've described it. We've talked about the, the um, signs of depression, the causes of it, and anxiety and the causes of it, and giving you some personal illustrations of, of different things that have happened along the way that I could share with you, maybe put it in a, a real-life context. But when all said and done, as I introduced myself, I told you I am a minister who happens to counsel. I didn't set out to be a counselor, um, but I am a minister who happens to counsel. And I received that training so I could be a better minister. And I've been forced to read hundreds of books. And I do mean forced to read hundreds of books. If you're going to pass the classes and, and get the certification, you're going to have to read books. I'm still telling my students that. I thought, you know, I can't read it for you. And I tell them, you know, he who does not read has no advantages over he who cannot read. So read the book. And so I've read the books. And every one of them taught me something. And every principle, I'm going to tell you without exception, there is not a single exception. Every principle in every one of those books that worked is a Bible principle. Now the person who wrote the book may not know it. The person who wrote the book may have tried something and it didn't work. And he tried something else and it, it didn't work. And he tried multiple things and they didn't work. And he tried something like, ah. That works. And so he writes a book and sells a book and I have to read the book to become a counselor. But you see, I had to advantage my very earliest memories, my very earliest memories. I would fall asleep at night with my mother reading the scriptures. So I've known the scriptures all my life. Now, I didn't know everything in them because I'd fall asleep while she was still reading them. But I learned to respect the scriptures when I got where I could read it myself, I recognized the stories, and they've been beneficial to me all my life. And my, when you enter the counseling world, and sometimes young people come up and they'll ask me about, I've been thinking about going into psychology or counseling. What do you think? And I tell them about how I got into this, and I give them this caution. I said, I'd go to a Christian college, or I would spend 
a period of time of really studying the scriptures first. To be really good and grounded in the, in the principles of faith before you enter that world. Because a lot of that's humanistic. The people who did write the book don't believe in the book. <laughs> in fact, sometimes they're a little hostile toward the book. And so you kind of need that grounding before you, you wade off into that uh, particular world. But there are lots of principles that, that work. But here's one of those examples. And I mentioned to you as we closed last session that if this person were to walk into any clinic and the conditions that are described in 1 Kings chapter 19 existed in a person's life, they would be diagnosed by any clinician according to the DSM-5 as clinically depressed. All the characteristics are there. All the markers are there. All the behaviors are there. All the conditions are there. And you probably are very, very familiar with the story. But when we talk about treating anxiety and depression, it's just a fascinating and faith-building thing to me that we have a biblical example because not only would a clinician diagnose Elijah as clinically depressed, he would tell Elijah to do what 1 Kings chapter 19 tells Elijah to do. <laughs> it's here are people who write the book say, all right, you know, if somebody comes to you in that condition, here's the first thing you've got to do. And boy, you read the book and say, oh, you know, and you mention some theorist that you that you're really impressed with, say, you know what they do. And I was in those classes, and all I could do was rejoice in my heart and say, I know what God did. Sometimes I said it out loud in class. Well, I don't know what Freud would do, but I know what God did. Oh, you mentioned that word in class. You're not supposed to mention him in class. Will you go with me to 1 Kings chapter 9? 19, rather. You see, the very first thing we would address with people who are clinically depressed is they're worn out dealing with it. I mean, they are absolutely, completely fatigued. And we don't know what all's gone on in their life and what they've struggled with, but they're, they're worn out. We do happen to know what went on in, in Isaiah's life. And we know that Elijah, I said Isaiah, I meant Elijah, there's a little button on here that says on. Have I told you that? Just in case you use this thing. And it's consistent. You always have to turn it on. Um, you see, sometimes in the spiritual realm, the church, we mean well. And we, we want to illustrate to others and to ourselves that we do trust God. And that we can trust God. And that God's the answer. But sometimes we take it out of the realm of reality and how God places us in those circumstances of life that He doesn't lead us without direction. That these things that are written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now underline that. Have hope. Because you have Elijah that doesn't have hope. 
And so when you learn what God said to Elijah, what God did with Elijah that gave him hope, guess what? That's what we can share with each other. And you don't have to be a licensed professional counselor to do that. You can be a caring, compassionate Christian and do that. That's why God recorded it. There are a lot of other things that happened in Elijah's life that we've not recorded for us. Why was this recorded? It's significant. And as a child, one of those stories my mother would read, I love to hear about Elijah on Mount Carmel. Because you see, sometimes in our spiritual realm, preachers would get up and say, you know, if you had enough faith, here's what you'd do. And you shouldn't have to take medication, or you shouldn't be depressed, you shouldn't be this, and you shouldn't be that. It's a sign of a weak faith. Boy, that tells me they haven't spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. And that tells me they've not read 1 Kings 18 and 1 Kings 19. Because I don't think you'd be in 1 Kings 18 and you'd question Elijah's faith. He's standing on Mount Carmel and he even puts all those prophets of Baal in a position where he's going to demonstrate that he has faith in his God. And you remember the story, and not our purpose to, to tell the whole story, but it is to set the context. And that's a powerful story. Here are all these prophets of Baal, and he said, you, call, you go first. We're going to build this altar, and we, we're going to put a sacrifice on the altar, and, and we're going to put wood under it so it can catch a fire, and, and you're going to call on your God and see if he'll consume the, the sacrifice, and after you're finished, I'll call on my God. Let them go first. Can't be more fair than that, can you? And so they call on Baal, and Baal doesn't answer. Elijah kind of chastised him a little bit, so maybe just hard of hearing. Maybe he needs to speak a little louder. Isn't that a demonstration of faith? To say, put him on the spot. Let him call on their God. And if he can hear, if he got the power, let him demonstrate it right here in front of everybody. Then everybody's going to believe it if it happened. If Baal sends down fire, then we know, hey, Baal can send down fire. Elijah knows it's not going to happen because he knows Baal was formed by man. But then when it comes to Elijah's turn, he said, by the way, just pour water on the, on the wood and build a trench around it and fill the trench with water. What is he doing? Demonstrating his faith. I'm going to call on my God. and Keep in mind, this was in a time of a, a long two-year drought. They didn't have water, so you don't want to waste water. And you just pour water on these things and, and you call upon your God. I'm going to call upon my God and we'll see what happens. Well, what happened? He didn't have to speak loudly. He didn't have to cut himself like the prophets of Baal did. He just called on the God of heaven and the presence of everybody was there. He demonstrated his faith. I believe the God of heaven will hear my prayer and consume these sacrifices and this altar and lapped up the water in the trenches. Well, if you stop there, you think, that is my Old Testament hero. Elijah is the man. I mean, here's a man who demonstrated faith in a public way and he made sure everybody knew that he gave credit to God. Now, that's a man of faith, isn't it? That's what all of us would aspire to be. We see if our application sometimes in our sermon were true, then we would shame Elijah the next time he came to our assembly. 
say, ah, you don't have much faith, Elijah. Because you remember Jezebel? Oh, do we remember Jezebel? She found out from, from Ahab, and we went home whining about what, what uh, Elijah had done, and he couldn't do anything about it himself. He wasn't a very manly person. You know, his wife had to do all of his tough stuff, you know? And she said, I can handle this for you. You don't worry about it. He, you know, before the sun goes down, he's going to be a dead man. And we just kind of surprised, or at least I'm surprised, when I read the story that here's this man on Mount Carmel, then you began to read 1 Kings chapter 19, and it said, and, and when uh, he saw, that is when Elijah saw that Jezebel was after his life, he arose and he went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and he left his servants there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay and slept under a juniper tree. Hmm. Same man on Mount Carmel? What is up with Elijah? You see, the very first thing that we can do to help when people are dealing with anxiety and depression, in this particular case, his anxiety led him to depression. God, he just said, what's the use? There's no hope. No matter what I do or where I go, this woman's going to pursue me for my life. And he has physically been at this for a while. He's come down from Mount Carmel. He spent some time on Mount Carmel with all this interaction with these prophets of Baal. And now he is fatigued. And he just wants it to be over. And when you look at that context, what do we do about that? Well, evidently for a while, God let him rest. He fell asleep under the juniper tree. There are times in our life when people need rest. Now, what we can't do, and we'll see from this story, what we can't do is just let them rest and rest and, and rest and disengage from life. That can't happen. And it didn't happen here. But you see, in a clinical setting, we would say, look, are you getting the proper rest? Are you able to sleep at night? And we try to make sure that, that they could sleep. Even sometimes we might refer them to a doctor and say, if you're not sleeping well, then we need to maybe get you some medication or something where you can sleep because you need your rest. We want to relieve that fatigue. Those are things that you and I can pay attention to. If someone's in that state, then... We might encourage them to rest in a conditioned way where we know they're getting the right rest at the right time for the right reason. God allowed him to, to rest because he was fatigued. And that's a, a real symbol of, of what it's like to be depressed. And those things have to be acknowledged. The second thing is he replenished his fuel. always found this fascinating when you, you read that story. In the last part of verse 5, it said, Then the angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. <clears throat> After some period of time, and I'm assuming the angel knew he's under the juniper tree because he found him there. And I'm assuming that he let him sleep for some period of time because he traveled a distance and he's asleep. 
But did you notice the terminology? A couple of things I think we need to pay attention to. It said he touched him. Now listen. And he looked and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and he went in strength of the meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb and the Mount of God. We were talking earlier about medication and those kind of things, taking it if you needed it. I don't know what was in that cake. I don't know what was in it. Uh, it was some God ingredients, wasn't it? Whatever was in that cake, God knew Elijah needed. Didn't he? You and I could even be participants in that. We don't know what God put in the cake. But we do know he was able to be energized for 40 days. We have these energy drinks today, you know. You take a shot of this and good to go. Well, I don't know what he had in there, but if you knew what he had in there, you could patent that, couldn't you? Forty days. Energized. With the food that God gave him. You and I could do that for those that struggle with depression. Say, look, get the right rest. What time are you going to bed? You know, you're not minding their business. You're saying, we need to get a regiment here and a plan here so you get the right amount of rest and that you're nourished. You see, those things are important for us to be engaged in and, and to be aware of so that we can replenish that fuel. When you get fatigued like that, and you, you burned up all your resources, you need the right kind of, of energy. Now, ladies, again, I say this very politely because I love your cooking. You're not having a fellowship meal tomorrow, are you? Okay. I don't want to say something and then all of you punish me um, in your assembly tomorrow with, with not bringing anything. So I love your cooking. But here, I doubt very seriously if what was baking on those coals was a double-decker, triple-filled German chocolate cake or Twinkie or Little Debbie. You see, we know from experience that those don't provide energy. They may have quick energy with the sugar, but boy, you're up and then you're done. You know, it's over. You certainly not going to go 40 days on that, are you? You got that little quick burst and say, oh, I wish I hadn't eaten that. I just ah, feel awful. So it evidently had some protein in it, something that would give him what he needed to be nourished and strengthened to function. And so we ought to do that for each other to say, look, what are some foods? This may take a little study on our part, a little uh, effort to say, what are some foods that are good for energy? Those fruits and nuts and those kind of things and, and vegetables that can provide uh, protein and, and energy. Don't head over there with the cake. Well, it said, it said he baked the cake. Uh, don't know what was in that cake, but I doubt very seriously if it was as sugar-related. <laughs> kind of doubt that. And so whatever it is that we need to fix, here's some things that are involved with what God did with Elijah that we can do with each other. You're really good at cooking. And so learn what to cook 
that can help energize folks to be engaged in life. So when they do eat it, they can be energized. And not just that I gotta make something, this is this is something I'm really good at. My wife can make the best pies in the world. My very favorite pie is coconut pie. And the only time she fixes when we have fellowship meals and I have to share it with people. She knows I don't need to eat coconut pie all the time, but and so she bakes it when I can have a slice of pie, but then it's gone. Can't eat it all the time. And she would know that it wouldn't energize me to every morning I get up and say, Your favorite pie is on the table. And so we need to understand that about how to deal with each other. What are things we can do, literally do, physically do, that can help each other when we're struggling with those things? Find those kind of foods and say, I'm going to bring you something to eat. The other thing you noticed here, both times, the angel touched him. He got close enough to him, he touched Elijah. When he's in this depressed stupor, he just crawled under the tree and said, let me die. And the angel touched him. We need to stay close enough to each other that we can touch each other in these times. Say, I'm right here. I'm right here. And hey, I baked something for you. May not be your favorite food, but it'd be good for you. Why don't you get up and let's, let's go sit and I'll serve the food for you and let's just talk for a moment. You see, that places you where you need to be, close enough them to touch them with resources to replenish their fuel. Those are things that we can be aware of. And when you go back and you look very briefly at what was going on with Elijah in those, those times when we saw him under that juniper tree, then he had lost complete connection with what he ought to have been doing. And he didn't really know where he needed to go or what he needed to do. And he just said, you know, I know what the pattern is. I know what's happened over the years. And, and my forefathers, you know, they died doing what I'm doing. And it was just a matter of time. They worked hard. They prophesied as God told them to prophesy. But they reached the same end to put the point. Just let it be over. See those losses that he'd experienced with his forefathers that had taken him to down that road and the hurt that he felt when the people didn't support his forefathers and the life demand when he was the only one standing up on Mount Carmel. All came crashing down on him. He was fatigued. The rest that God allowed him to have and then the fuel that God provided for him. See, that fuel, that fuel is because when you're in a depressed state, you've lost your appetite. You probably would not fix the food for yourself. The likelihood is that wouldn't be your purpose or your plan. And because of that, since you don't have the food, then you don't have the energy. And since you don't have the energy, you don't have the stamina to put one foot in front of the other and do what has to be done. So that's something we can do for each other. Be close enough to stay in touch, provide what we need at the time, so their body can process that and have the energy enough so we can get them back doing what they need to do. And the third thing that we can do is 
restore their focus. The next story is fascinating. We won't read the whole context. I'm going to highlight a few of those verses. But you remember in, in chapter 4, or chapter 19, verse 4, he went that day's journey and then he said, It is enough, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. When he was on that mountain, boy, was he focused. He knew the contrast that was being made. He knew what the outcome was going to be. He knew that God was going to address the issue. But now he's saying, what's the point? The focus here is clear and distinct and filled with faith. The focus here, under the juniper tree, no focus at all for tomorrow. No purpose to go on. You see, Life didn't have meaning anymore to Elijah. And there was a lack of motivation for him to find another occasion like Carmel. For him to take on Jezebel with the same recognition that God's going to take care of her the way he took care of the prophets of Baal. And there was a lack of mastery of life. Just couldn't do it anymore under those immediate conditions. Here's the fascinating part. When you look at restoring that focus, don't ever forget this part. When you look at verse 9 through verse 15, you have God coming to Elijah and asking what he's doing. He goes from the juniper tree to a cave. <laughs> and to me, that's like going into that bedroom and pulling the shades and locking the door. Mm. Yeah, that's not a good place to be. So God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah tells what we would say, this pitiful story. You know, sometimes when we're working with depressed people, we say, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk to them. You know, they tell that same story. What would God do? Well, more pointedly, what did God do? Are you as fascinated as I am when you read that story? He let Elijah tell the story twice without interrupting him. He didn't say, yada, yada, yada. I've heard it, Elijah. You just go on and on and on about, oh, that uh, they've killed the fathers and you're the only one left and now they're seeking your life. Now get over it and get busy. He didn't interrupt him at all. He listened to his story. You know what therapists do? You know what licensed professional counselors do? They listen to the story. See, we read it in a book. Here's what you do. You listen to their narrative. And you let them tell their story. Oh, wow. Who was it that came up with that? That you listen to them. Who would have thought of something like that? He must have been a brilliant person to say, listen to what they're saying. They need to get it out so they can hear it. And you need to hear it. God heard it twice without interruption. I've just always been fascinated by that. Did God already know the outcome? Yeah. 
Did he know the prophets had been killed? Sure he had. He'd already dealt with that. He sent other prophets to say, you've killed my prophets. Sure he knew what was going on. But he listened to Elijah because it was a real life experience for Elijah. And he cared about Elijah. And he knew Elijah had to get that out of his system. Had to get it up so he could hear it himself. And then God could respond to him. And I'm fascinated that his response was, that's pitiful, Elijah. You just saw what I did on Mount Carmel. You called on me and I set down fire and I consumed the sacrifice and the altar. That's pitiful, Elijah. That now you're sitting here telling me that story. You know you could call on me. If you had any faith, Elijah, you could have just called on me. What are you doing here all whipped out in this cave? And why are you feeling sorry for yourself? Now, preachers, we might take note that that's not what God did. That sounds good when you're in the pulpit and you aren't depressed. And the brethren are paying your salary. And folks are cooking for you and bidging you and pampering you as a preacher. Not hard to preach that. But boy, when you have to get close enough to touch people, experience it with people, listen to people, now you've got to be present with people at the cave where they're dwelling. You've got to invest in people to coax them out of that cave and listen to that story again. But then he restored his focus. Again, wasn't a lot of discussion. You don't have to have a lot of discussion with people you're trying to help. Now don't leave here and say, well, Brother Martin said we can just tell you here, you're going to go with me. Now there's a process to that, all right? Now, this is the short version. Uh, this is how you'd like for it to be at the end. And you need to do your part to get there. But if you get close enough to them to really touch their lives, and be present in their deepest, darkest moments of their life. And you provide what they need to be energized and re-engaged. And then you participate with them in regaining that focus. If you know a strength they have, if you know someone else who may be struggling with something similar there, say, you know, you're right, I really don't understand how that feels, but you do. Would you be willing to help me reach that person? Because you do understand. And that when you and I talk about it, you'll give me a better understanding. And that's what God did with Elijah here. He said, I've got a job for you, Elijah. Whatever is in that food, energized him and he knew he's energized enough eating that food that he could carry out the task at hand he said you're going to go appoint a king in syria and you're going to appoint one in judah and you're going to appoint one in israel what you're going to do is appoint someone to take your place isn't that fascinating? 
He didn't say, you think you're up to it, Elijah? I'm not sure you can handle it. You know, depressed people can't really count on them. They didn't have that discussion. He let Elijah process that by resting up. By being refueled. And then, he gave him something to participate in that Elijah was good at. You go and speak my word by appointing a king in Syria and one in Judah and go find your replacement. What did that do? It re-engaged this man who had disengaged. What did Elijah do? He went and appointed a, a king in Syria. And he appointed a king in Judah. And he went and found Elisha. And this is something else I find fascinating. It doesn't record for us that when he got down to Syria that he said, you know, they killed all the prophets. I'm the only one left. You know, I don't really want to be here. But God told me to appoint you, so here you are. He just went and did what God told him to do. He didn't seem to go to Judah. And see, God had a plan in place, and, and he was going to address those things, but he needed Elijah's help. Could God have done all those things without Elijah? Sure he could have, but he didn't. Can we do those things that that depressed person could help us do? Sure we could. Could we do it without them? Yes, we could. But that's not going to help them, is it? If we can re-engage them in helping us accomplish the Lord's will, that helps dispel some of those moments of depression. It helps them feel like they've got something to contribute because they do. Now, I can't guarantee you that you're going to leave this earth the way Elijah did in a fiery chariot with all of God's trappings of saying, you won't have to worry about that anymore. But I can promise you that no matter what you face in life, if you'll do it in the way that God has prescribed for it to be done, you can make it. And it will be worth it when it's all said and done. But more importantly for all of us who are here, I hope, I truly, sincerely hope that we know better how to help each other. And that we're not afraid to do that. That we get close enough to each other to do that. And that we educate ourselves about how to do that better. And we don't have to go around and whisper behind depressed people's backs. Be quiet. They're depressed. There are times when we ought to be quiet. There are times when we ought to let them rest. And there are times when they will need us to provide for them resources so they can be replenished. But they desperately, desperately want to be refocused and participate. I tell clients sometimes there are some recommendations of of books that are on the screen um, I will be on the screen in just a moment but as we think about 
those things where none of us are going to be able to escape our life circumstances. If we don't address depression or don't address anxiety, it can turn into depression. And depression unaddressed and undealt with will eventually cause us to be helpless and hopeless. And it will cause us not to be able to accomplish the Lord's will in our life. And so the things that we've learned, I hope that we can address those things. And it doesn't matter what race we are. It doesn't matter what age we are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic circumstance we're in. We're not going to escape life. But if we're in it together, oh, we can navigate it a lot easier. And that's the kind of compassion and care we ought to have for each other. And so the books, I think, that should be there. That first one deals more with the with the anxiety part. And I tell, I kind of simplify what's in the book sometimes with my clients. I'll say, look, um, you can't tell a, a, a person who's dealing with depression, they'll just feel better. But I tell them sometimes, I'll say, look, we can act our way into feeling better, but we can't feel our way into acting better. If you wait till you feel like it, you know what's not going to happen? You're not going to do it. Because you do not feel like doing it. But if you do it anyway, like Elijah, get up and do what needs to be done. It helps bring those chemical levels up so that our endorphins where they ought to be and our serotonin gets released and we can function and we feel better. The last book up there by Dr. Myers is, is um, deals more with the depression part. And uh, really, really both of them are very helpful books. The, the first one's more of a workbook where you can, it's got assignments each week and questions you can answer and it really tells us how to tell ourselves the truth. Because sometimes when we get in these particular modes, we tell ourselves a lot, can't do it, can't ever feel better, can't be a participant, not worthy to be a Christian, don't have enough faith. We tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves lies long enough, guess what? We believe them. And so it teaches us how to tell ourselves the truth. That's really the context of how we ended from 1 Kings chapter 19. God bless you for being here today and for being so patient sitting through such a long, grueling seminar. And you've encouraged me by your presence today. Thank you.